Heavenly Father, we thank you that you not only have provided our way of salvation, but Lord, that you have revealed yourself, your character, your will, and your desires for mankind through your word. Lord, we pray that we might be a people who receive the implanted word with joy and humility. Uh, work in us by your spirit that we might rightly see who you are, rightly see who we are, even when we might not like who it displays us to be. But may it cause us to cling to you and depend on you for all things. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as a child, I was a very, very fussy eater. I wasn't that keen to try particular things. I was, my parents used the bribe method, whereby if I was willing to have a mouthful of something, I presume, and swallow it, I would get 20 cents. Now, sometimes that, that was pretty good economy. Sometimes I didn't think it was worth the 20 cents in a trying. But as a child... Broccoli, disgusting. Now, kids, just close your ears for a minute, but when I didn't like something that I was served up, I didn't politely tell my parents that it wasn't to my liking. Apparently, I would often describe it as saying it tastes like chunder. What a delightful child I was. But as it turns out, as I grew up, broccoli is actually... My favourite vegetable. But sometimes we reach conclusions early on in life and we decide, that's it, I'm set for life, this is the truth for all time. And we refuse to listen to other thoughts. You grow up thinking you know what's good in every aspect of life and you are so quick to give your objections and your reason why, even before you're willing to listen to another opposing view, to learn something or to listen to something. And you know what? Sorry to break it to you, sometimes we're wrong. At Sam's Bucks Night um, a week ago, when they asked for words of wisdom, my contribution, oh, obviously we'd been chatting with Sam and Millie during premarital counselling quite a lot anyway, my contribution on that night was, Sam, when you guys have a disagreement, and you will, just putting it out there, there's a 50% chance you're going to be wrong. At which point he said there's also a 50% chance that he'll be right. <laughs> so we'll see how that pans out over time. But sometimes we are just wrong. Yet we are so attached to some entrenched idea we have about something that we're not that keen to listen. Sometimes the Bible can be that voice that says something that goes against everything that we might have held very firmly. It might confront some of the things in our life that we cross our arms and say, I will not move on this point. The advice that James gives us in these verses we're looking at this morning is no exception to that rule. 
This is our second series in the epistle of James. Last week we introduced James as being the half-brother of Jesus, the, the head of the Jerusalem church, the one who oversaw the Jerusalem council described in Acts 15 that happened in AD 49, and also potentially the writer of the earliest written New Testament book, most likely written in the mid-40s, as in AD 40s, not 1940s where he's writing to Jewish Christians who have fled because of their persecution, because of their faith in Christ. Last week, as we looked at verses 1 to 12, we looked at three opportunities for growth in areas that we may not naturally seek them or look for them. We saw the opportunity to grow spiritually through the process of trials. Where James says, let steadfastness have its full effect. We learn the opportunities to grow by asking God who generously gives wisdom for wisdom. And we learn the opportunities for growth that come through financial humility. Meaning that if you're financially comfortable to realise your confidence does not rest in your finances and that is a potentially a danger to cause you to not place your trust in Jesus. But even too, if you're on the complete opposite end of the spectrum to depend on God but not to seek finances by unhonourable un- means in order to, to sustain oneself. Today we're looking at through two key themes. Effectively it's about Temptation and being doers of the word, which we've broken up into some smaller points. We're going to be looking at temptation source and consequences in verses 13 to 15, God's unchanging goodness in verses 16 to 18, receiving the implanted word in verses 19 to 21, being doers of the word in verses 22 to 25, asking the question, can religion be good? In the last two verses, And wrapping up with truth with legs. Temptation, source and consequences. Do you suffer with, struggle with temptation? Well, rather than you answer, I'm going to tell you, you do. And the reason why I know that is because you're a human being, every single human being here and before you, other, or I'm not going to say other than Adam and Eve because they did, um, other than Jesus, did. But where does it come from? Often the answers that people will commonly give, they'll say, well, it's, it's God testing me. Sometimes they'll say, oh, it's the, the friends that I surround myself with or the, the culture that I live within. Probably a better question to ask is, what does the Bible say? You know, as the very first words in our reading says, let nobody say that God is tempting me. It says, no Christian should accuse God of tempting them with sin because he does not. Just think about it for a moment. What does it mean to tempt somebody? To tempt somebody usually means to put something before someone in a way that you hope will coerce them towards that. 
And when you think about it like that, to think, would a good and holy God put sin before Christians in the hope that they would fall into sin? Of course he wouldn't. He is neither tempted by sin, nor does he tempt anybody with sin or evil. God doesn't send that type of thing. That's not the sort of thing that he gives. So James reminds them. Whoops, I've skipped some page. Whoops, I did skip a page. What we are told is God promises two things in the midst of our temptation. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, No temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So he promises two things. He promises that he will not allow you to be in a situation of temptation that is too much for the resources he has provided you with. And the second thing that he has promised is that he always will provide you with a way of escape. I've said it before, he doesn't push you out the way of escape, but he will always make sure there is a way available to you. So it's certainly not God as the one where our temptations come from. Maybe it's our friends or, or, or our circumstances or the culture we live in. If you look back to the Garden of Eden, you've got Adam and Eve, you see Satan come along and they, they look at this thing that he's saying, oh, God didn't really say don't eat that. Look how good it is to eat. Eve takes it, she gives it to Adam who was there with him. Adam eats. Surely Adam can say, that's Satan's fault. He started all that. Or when questioned by God, Adam's, what did Adam say? He says, that woman you gave me, she gave it to me. Yet you read that throughout your Bible from start to finish. Who does God hold accountable for Adam's actions? It's not Satan. It's not Eve. It is Adam. It's not God who sends our temptations. It's not our friends or Satan, or the culture we live in that's responsible for our temptation and us giving into it. Verse 14 says, Each person, in other words, every person who has ever given into temptation, this is where it comes from. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. It's our own desire and our own choice whether we carry out that desire or not. Now, it's often that people will say, I was born this way. This is, this is the way I was born. And you know what? That is a true statement. Because every single one of us are born with a sinful nature. Every single one of us are born with an inclination, sometimes in different areas to, to one another, that we are inclined to dishonour God. What tempts one person may not tempt another person. Temptation is only really effective temptation if 
that is desirable to the person who's being tempted. Like you can put out tofu in front of me a million times, I guarantee I will not be tempted to eat it. I've got no desire for tofu. Well, actually my body's got no desire for tofu either. But because we've all got a sinful nature, all of us have an inclination towards sin. We all have sinful desires. They may differ from one person to the other. What I struggle with, you might not struggle with. What you struggle with, I might never struggle with. But it's worth noting that feeling tempted is not a sin. Feeling the temptation means you are human. It's what you do with that temptation. The source of the temptation is our own desire and if acted upon, gives birth to sin and if continually lived and abided in, leads to death. So instead of accusing God of causing the temptation, James reminds them of who their God is. A God of unchanging goodness. James's first suggestion is, do not be deceived. So one can presume by the fact that he's introduced this to his readers that some of them were blaming God for the temptations that they were facing. But we're seeing God's character as pure. He himself cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anybody with evil. You want to know the types of things which God gives? Well, verse 17, this says something of his nature. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Every good and perfect gift. Every good gift you've ever seen, experienced, whether you trust in God or not, that is where it has come from. He is the ongoing, constantly giving God. As you see there, these good gifts are coming down. There is a constant flow. He is continuing to give good gifts every single moment of every single day to those who trust in him and to those who do not. But of those many good gifts in which he gives, verse 18, he focuses upon that wonderful gift of new life and salvation. That it was of his own will that he brought us forth, as in gave us new birth into this new life by the word of truth, that we should be kind of a first fruits. Of his creatures. He's given us new life through the word of truth. The word of truth that Paul says to Timothy is able to make you wise to salvation. And the outcome is we are like first fruits. Now, in the Old Testament, the festival of first fruits was, was a case of recognizing that God is the one who gives all things. And people would bring the best of what they had before God, not only of a recognition that he is the one who has blessed them with everything they have, but recognising that he is worthy of their best. And throughout the New Testament, this language is used frequently of Christians. 
to acknowledge that the life in which they have, they have because he has given it. And that it is right for them to give of all of themselves in return. He is the continually giving good giver of every good gift. He's given us life through the word of truth and therefore we are to continue to receive the implanted word. In verse 16, he began by saying, do not be deceived. In other words, do not believe what is false. So now in verse 19, instead of being deceived, believing what is false, he says, know this. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Now, as a standalone statement, it is true. As a standalone generic for all time. But its specific application and context in this passage is in regards to how we deal with temptation. But as I say, it is true in an overall broad sense as well. When we think about it, what are some of our first responses when we are tempted? One of our, some of our natural inclinations are to blame others rather than take responsibility ourselves. Sometimes even to get angry, and on occasion you'll see people who get angry at God for their temptation and for their giving in to temptation. I think it's fair to conclude we are naturally quick to do the things that we should be slow to do and we are naturally slow to do the things that we should be quick to do. If you look at the order, the first thing it says we should do is to be quick to hear. Now that doesn't sit too well to the fleshly, selfish nature that we all have. Because being quick to hear says that the most important voice that I need to listen to is not mine. It's not my own opinion that is the most important to hear. Sure, there's many people around us who are worthwhile listening to, who may be helpful, but I think the greatest application of being quick to hear we see down in verse 21. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Remember when Jeremiah spoke of the new covenant? He said, when I give you my new covenant, I will place my law within you and I will write my words within your heart. God has given us his implanted word. We are to study it, to meditate upon it. And it's to be received with meekness and humility. Why does it need to be received with humility? When we read God's word, it shines a bright light on us and it shows us in all of our faults who we truly are. And when it says who we are, we need to choose, am I going to be quick to listen or am I just going to be quick to speak and defend why that doesn't need to apply to me? Rather than being quick to speak, presuming that my wisdom is better, receive the implanted word. 
but we're also called to be slow to speak. Again, for many of us, that's the opposite of our natural reaction. Sometimes I'm pretty quick to defend. But a person who is quick to speak usually has themselves at the centre of the scenario. They think what's most important for the rest of the world is that they hear what I have got to say. We've all said things in the heat of moments that we wish we could take back. I'm yet to meet a single person who has said, man, I wish I hadn't listened quickly. And thirdly, we're just slow to become angry. Again, because our inclination can be to do so quickly. Our reasons why is because the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. A quick-tempered person is like someone who speaks quickly. They will have many regrets, especially a person who might be quick to become angry about something they've taken no time to actually understand or to listen. I, along with probably a number of us, probably have had a number of times when we think, if only I'd actually listened before I opened my mouth. What about those conversations sometimes we have? Again, one of these ones where it's so deeply ingrained, we think we know it all. Someone starts talking about a particular topic and we just start getting angry. We stop listening to what they're saying and while they're talking, we're just waiting for their mouth to shop so, so we can give them my well-thought-through lesson plan of anger as to why they are wrong. Instead of listening, maybe we might learn We're just ready to unload what we've already got within us. We've spoken about being quick to hear, especially in receiving the implanted words. Slow to talk, slow to become angry. We've seen the end part of verse 21 that says, what is a right response to receive the implanted word? But at the beginning of verse 21, gives us a description of what is a wrong response, what it looks like to be slow to hear, quick to speak and quick to become angry. He says, after he advises to do those things, be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry, he says, therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. Who has ever thought of being slow to listen quick to speak and quick to become angry in terms of it being filth and rampant wickedness. Because that's how God describes it. To be slow to hear, quick to speak and quick to become angry means to not receive the implanted word. The implanted word which is to transform us and renew us according to Romans 12.2. But there is a difference between hearing something and receiving it. There's lots of people who can give a right, godly answer as to what would be the right response. But whether or not somebody has actually received it or just heard it won't come down to the answers they can give to a question. It will come to 
what do they do in the situation? We are called to be doers of the word. Now, James's audience have potentially been deceived in two different ways. One, they've been deceived into believing, blaming God for their temptation. And two, potentially, for thinking that knowing all the right answers about God is enough. And to that second one, James says in verse 22, but be doers of the word, not only hearers, deceiving yourself. When he says not hearers only, he's not saying you shouldn't be hearers. He said it's important to hear. We need to hear. Romans 10, 17 says faith comes from hearing, from hearing the word of God. We come to faith by hearing. We grow by hearing. Like Samuel in his response in 1 Samuel 3, 9 and 10, he says, speak, Lord, your servant hears. Whenever we come to God in the word, that should be our attitude. Speak, Lord, your servant hears. And realistically, we shouldn't be any different in prayer. Speak, Lord, your servant hears. But James warns us, hearing and hearing alone is useless. If you have genuinely received the implanted word, the proof is you will do it. And I like the illustration which James gives because we can recognise it. We do it. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. Now, I don't think anyone looks in the mirror and then the next time they see something, see their own face in a reflection somewhere and go, what's all that? Now, I'm a bloke and I've got to admit, I don't spend a great deal of time looking in front of the mirror. You can probably tell. But I've probably gone out of our house with things on my face or things that are just wrong that I would have addressed had I seen them. I remember very early days when we moved up here to Toowoomba. I think it might have been the, one of the earliest Toowoomba Christian ministers meetings that I went to. And I'd been playing with the kids that morning and the kids had stuck stickers all over me. And I went to that meeting with these stickers all over me. Nobody said a word during that meeting. It wasn't until afterwards that I realised that I had all these fun stickers the kids had put all over me. But sometimes you look in front of a mirror and you go, oh yeah, there's few grey hairs there, oh, I've got another grey eyebrow hair, I get a few of those going on these days. Or you see, you now you've had your cappuccino and you've got the chocolate ring from the cuff up here on your nose. Or you've got a big nose hair hanging out, whatever it is. When you look and you find these things, or you've got a bit of sauce in your face, you don't say, well, that's my look for the day, isn't it? When you recognise those things, you do something about it. That's what it's like to be a hearer of God's word. It shows us the truth that we might act and respond accordingly. But the one who looks into the perfect law of the gospel and who does it is blessed. 
having good theological knowledge, but never putting it into practice is pointless. might be great for a Bible trivia night, but it is useless. It's kind of like memorising your car manual, but never driving your car. The blessing comes from doing. As James's half-brother, the better one, Jesus says, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Now, there have been times throughout church history when people have been reluctant to talk about this idea of doing good works. Not because Christians aren't called to it. Like even when you look at Ephesians 2, verses 8 through to 10, when it says we're saved by grace, by faith alone. But he says, but we're supposed to walk in the good works that he prepared beforehand. But some people don't like using that language of good works. It sounds like we're earning our salvation. It sounds too much like religion. But we don't do good works to earn God's favour. We do good works because we have earned God's favour. And so often we hear people use a phrase like, I love Jesus, but I hate religion. Want to know something? That is an unbiblical thought. Can religion be good? Yes, it can. Sure, you could point to parts in the Bible where Jesus rebukes people for placing their trust in religious actions and activities like he does with the Pharisees. However, the word does not necessarily mean something negative. In fact, James calls his readers to a form of religion that is pure and undefiled before God. Religion, the way that it should be, is not just external acts. Pure religion should be external acts of worship that are born out of an internal heart of worship. One without the other is nothing. Now, it would be a mistake to describe verses 26 to 27 as the comprehensive definition of what pure and undefiled religion is. But there are three pertinent examples for James as readers. Having control over your speech, the things you say, visiting widows and orphans in their affliction, and keeping yourself unstained or undefiled by the world. So firstly, having control over your tongue. We'll come back to this thing. James says quite a bit about the dangers our tongue can do and the need to control it. Even here he describes it as a wild beast that needs bridling. Because if not controlled, all manner of sin abounds. As the Proverbs say, when words are many, transgression is not lacking. But whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Hence again, it is a good thing to be slow to speak. Another reason is that the words we speak are a revealer of our heart. I remember someone hearing a story about a church working bee and they were doing all this hammering and one guy was following the minister around to see what would happen when he hit his thumb with a hammer. 
What comes out of our mouth is not out of character. What comes out of our mouth in whatever circumstance is a revealer of our character. As Jesus says, the good person out of his good treasure of his heart produces good. The evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So James's first example is to control your tongue, be slow to speak, recognising it is also a revealer of our heart. The second also, a matter of the heart, to visit widows and orphans in their affliction. And you could think, man, anyone could do that. You don't need to be a Christian to, to help out widows and orphans when they're going through difficulty. But I think James has specifically mentioned that, not only because it was a prevalent need for them at that time, because it reflects God's heart. To do things for a people who cannot do things in return. That your motive to love is just because you want to love them. And the third one, which often gets misunderstood, keep yourself from being unstained or undefiled by the world. Now, in our marriage, up to almost 11 years, we've had a number of laundry mishaps, shall we call them that, where something's gone in with something else and it's had a dramatic impact on the rest of the load. And usually it's like a red thing and everything you've got ends up being pink, which is a very wonderful manly thing to experience. But it's a good picture of what James talks about being unstained and undefiled by the world. When he talks about being stained by the world, he means like, do not take on the appearance of the world around you. It does not mean, which is often misunderstood, it does not mean avoiding interaction with the world. It doesn't mean having no contact with people who do not know Jesus. If I was bring it back to the laundry scenario, putting your whites and colours together doesn't necessarily mean your whites will get defiled. Over time you'll realise some things you really don't put together. And in the same sense, when we're told not to be keep ourselves unstained by the world, we recognise in some environments we place ourselves at greater risk of that happening. Particularly if there are areas which we know we are more likely to be tempted, then that might be a wise area to stay away from, that we don't become like the world in that area. We must take cautions. We must realise what circumstances we need to stay away from But we do not stay away from the world. We do not stay away broadly from unbelievers who are in need of the message that each of us have. One of the greatest appeals of the early church is that they were nothing like the world around them. And if Christians start to seek to look, we just want to be like everybody else. The world doesn't want that. They'll say, why bother? Why would I turn to Jesus if they're just the same as us but they've got some other things that I don't like? He tells them to tame their tongues, visit widows and orphans and be unstained from the world. Not a checklist of three things that make you godly but some things that were pertinent to their readers. Truth with legs. I like James 
and I find James difficult. It's an easy book to understand. No one can read through James and go, I don't get it. It's too complicated. But it's a hard book that it, it, it shines up a mirror before us and it exposes some of those things that we might have longly held and it shows us some of our ugly natural thoughts and habits that we've got. Sometimes we've got a tendency to look everywhere for the blame except for ourselves. Even as saved Christians, we know that in our flesh we have nothing good. We are desperately wicked and need help in every single area. We confess sometimes we're quick to speak, quick to get angry. But we need to be a people who are quick to listen, especially to the implanted word. Because our God is good. Every good and perfect gift is from him. So give thanks to him as you see his goodness. Recognise his goodness. It will change your whole perspective of life to be constantly giving thanks to him for his goodness. And that means even his commands are good. Even the parts of scriptures that just kind of grate with our inner convictions or, or certain things that we've grown up with, they are for our good. And if we trust that God is truly good as he reveals himself to be, we are called to humbly receive and accept his word, not to be quick to speak and to justify why we should do whatever we want to do. We know he's got no evil in his character and that there is blessings in obedience. To humbly receive the implanted word, live as people who receive the word of truth and walk as a people with truth on legs. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you care enough to to shine a light on the thoughts and intents of our heart. Because so often they are so far from where they should be. Sometimes we confess that our motives, our inclinations do look a little bit more like the world than they should. Lord, we ask that you wouldn't just change our actions, but Lord, that you would change our hearts. And out of a pure heart that desires to worship you, to serve you, and humbly receive and accept and walk in light of your truth, that we might live lives of holiness, lives of worship, that display the wonder and glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.